Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, and each week I sit down with my battle-scarred but indomitably optimistic investment manager friend Peter Silent to chew over the latest developments in the markets and debate what they might mean for governments, investors and taxpayers. So Peter, this week I thought we would talk about the markets again and what they've been happening. Uh, and one should never forget that markets have this extraordinary capacity to surprise and confound people uh, and to do things that nobody is expecting. I think we've seen uh, one example of that this week uh, in terms of the American in, uh, unemployment figures, uh, which do seem to have taken uh, at least uh, the profession of economists by surprise. What was your reaction to those figures? My reaction to these figures was that it's it must be a mistake. Uh, but I think that the markets are, they not only confound and confuse, but they sneak up on you. And you have to expect the unexpected. So I think this was totally unexpected. So we're talking about the unemployment figures which have, which have turned out to be much better than people expected. In other words, we all knew when the, uh, when the crisis hit, there was a big surge in uh, unemployment in the United States, we're talking about, and it went up to a peak of 14.7% last in April. But the latest figures show that it's come down to 13.3%, in other words, quite, which is, okay, in the, in the grand scheme of things, that's only about uh, a 10% reduction, but it's a much uh, sharper decline than, than most economists were expecting. Uh, and what do you think has been the, uh, what do you think has been the, the reason for that? The reason for that seems to have been the early, um, you know, the lockdown, the abolition of a lockdown in various states at various times, plus the pent-up uh, demand, which is giving rise to, if you like, pent-up supply, if I can put it that way. Do you remember we discussed last time the the race between the contraction of supply versus the contraction of demand. And I just think that the combination of the consumer finally being allowed to go out and go going shopping and so on has created businesses um, to decide to re-employ people. I think it's really quite simple. And those people who make prognostications about these things, they're notoriously fickle anyway these um, non-farm payroll numbers. And you can get uh, statistics which then turn out to be completely different, even from what automatic data processing forecasts every week. So there is a lot of capacity to surprise in the non-farm payroll numbers. And that's what happened yesterday. I can't help uh, quoting from President Trump, whose response to these <laughs> unemployment figures were, of course, uh, you can imagine, remarkably bullish. He said, we'll go back to having the greatest economy in the world. This is a rocket ship. Uh, do you think, the <laughs> we can't help laughing at him, but it's, it's, it's not always laughing matter when, when President Trump, as we'll discuss in a moment. But um, uh, do you think he's right about that? Is the U.S. economy going to come roaring back like a rocket ship? I, I would say so. Maybe in a different form. The rocket ship might uh, have a different coat of paint on it. But don't forget, the, as we discussed also a few weeks ago, the U.S. consumer is a very powerful economic agent. And so I think that 
as I said, this pent up demand. And, you know, I'm not that surprised because if you look at the savings rate, how that's gone up, how people have put money aside either because they wanted to or because there was nothing else to do or because they had to. But the fact is that that money is, it represents huge spending power. And we saw the beginnings of that in the last few weeks. And obviously the media was managing our expectations and was painting everything in a very negative light. And then the reality struck. So yes, I think it is a rocket ship. The speed of which I don't know. And what I also don't know is how the momentum will develop in the next weeks and months leading up to the end of the year. But he is, President Trump is, is basically right. So one month's figures, obviously only a straw in the wind. There's still, a, a quite, as you say, a long way to go before we can see what the real impact of the, uh, of the, of the lockdowns has been and the return to work. Uh, you're absolutely right, I think, about the, uh, the savings rate. I mean, the statistics that we do have appear to show that people have been receiving money from furlough schemes and, uh, uh, and other government handouts, if you like, uh, and they haven't had enough uh, things to spend it on. So their, their cash balances have been going up. And the big question is whether they will, as you say, spend them or not spend them as we go forward. I mean, for the market itself, the, the stock market has obviously been very strong again. Uh, I think it is, as you said last week, it is a lot of that is about our friend FOMO, the fear of missing out. Anybody who was really bearish before uh, has been caught with their, if you like, with their, um, with their pants down and are struggling to catch up for fear that their performance numbers will look very bad. Uh, but I think it's we're reading in the in the media at least that uh, a lot of hedge funds are now preparing for a uh, for a uh, for the market to kind of come back a little bit, if not further, uh, because of what's happened. What what's your view on that? My view on that is that hedge funds have been uniformly or almost uniformly bearish, and when hedge fund managers proclaim their bearishness, you could be quite sure that they're talking their book. And they usually tend to make their performances when there's a lot of volatility in the market. And you saw that volatilities come all the way down. So a lot of these hedge funds are sitting on short positions. And I'm sure that they are in part already now responsible for or will be responsible for a continuing rise in the markets because they have to cover their shorts. Um, you've then got the economists who are also almost universally bearish. Economists usually are bearish. And so you've got this quite powerful combination, which is powerful in the sense that it can surprise market observers. And I, I think that's what happened. That's what happened this, not only this past week, but also last week. And as the ship, as the, the oil tanker is shifting its course. I wouldn't be surprised to see a little bit of a setback in the market myself. I think looking at the, you know, I, I, I like to look at uh, the technical analysis and so on, just to remind me where the supply and demand is at the moment. And everything looks, what we say, massively overbought in a very short-term basis because the rally has been so strong that it's uh, it's taken the market perhaps a little bit above 
where it should be. But uh, the longer-term trend, I'm sure, will still be upwards. Uh, I mean, there was a, a well-known um, observation that when 90% of the stocks in the market uh, go above their 50-day moving average, which is a, a shorter-term trend, that just happened about a week ago. That tends to be very bullish uh, because it means that everything is rising. There's a lot of breadth in the market. All Most of the ships are, <laughs> have been launched to rising now again, and that's usually quite bullish. So I would think the, the longer-term trend will be up, but uh, there will be a bit of a setback in the short term. And the setback um, in the short term could be based on the fact that if you look at yesterday's market, for example, the big performers were all those battered down stocks that had lost half their value and more in the last few months, primarily in the airline sector, the energy sector, they're the ones that bounced back hugely. And so if there's a setback, as you say, which wouldn't surprise me at all, it's likely to be because of those, because the momentum behind that type of stock is going to peter out as the short coverings have been accomplished. But I think we should also look at the side effects, which I found very interesting, which is that the ability of companies to raise their prices on the back of so-called pent-up demand has fizzled out completely. There's a graph I saw about that. Nobody can raise their prices. Uh, that it, it just isn't going to work, which means that the pricing power continues for the time being to remain in the hand of the consumer, which is important because of this whole globalization story. And even more important is the fact that if they can't raise prices, then where is this dreaded inflation going to come from? So I think we've got to keep our eyes very closely. Um, we've got to look at those those two factors, among others, quite a lot in the next few weeks and months. And we've also talked about the importance of liquidity and the amount of the money that's being pumped into the system by the uh, authorities, central banks and, and others. Uh, now, traditionally, you know, monitors would say that is going to lead to inflation in due course, but we don't, of course, know how long those schemes are going to go on for and indeed whether they're going to be pared back or not, and indeed whether or not that will be enough to as you say, to uh, to use coin a term to to trump the uh, the impact that you've been talking about of of no consumer. I mean, consumer demand remaining dominant. Yes, that's a very good question indeed. I noticed talking about quantitative easing and debt monetization. What's quite interesting is that governments are able to borrow at very low interest rates, underwritten by central banks who buy the bonds and those very low interest rates those low yields then they flow into the coffers of the central banks who are the bondholders and the central banks make a nice profit and that profit is then distributed to the central bank's shareholders who happen to be the state so it's a sort of massive recycling exercise which occurred to me the other day i don't know what the effect thereof is on the on the macro economy, but I thought that that was uh, quite an interesting quirk. I think that um, there is, for the first time, uh, cooperation between monetary authorities and fiscal authorities, and you didn't have that ten years ago during the global financial crisis. 
So you've got cooperation on the fiscal front. Indeed, what happened in, in, in Europe this week, the reforms that the German government, I wanted to mention that to you, um, introduced, I thought, were very interesting because apart from other measures, they include a reduction in VAT from 19% to 16% in order to combat deflation. I couldn't help remembering what Mrs. Thatcher did, I think it was in 1980, when, she, when on the one hand she reduced corporate taxation and personal tax rates, but at the same time she did a massive increase in VAT. And the purpose of that increase in VAT was to combat inflation. So that gave me what I saw Mrs. Merkel doing this week, gave me even more confidence that to be worried about inflation is to be worried about the wrong thing. Right. Well, you're right about uh, <coughs> about the VAT increase. I remember that very well. Of course, it was uh, it was not very well received at the time. Uh, it did have the other advantage other advantage is much easier to collect than uh, than than other kind of taxation, but. Uh, it certainly was uh, part of those uh, measures that the Conservative government introduced in, back in the early 80s, uh, which were, if you remember, the famous episode of the 364 economists who, uh, who signed a letter written to one of the newspapers protesting about the decision by, uh, by the Chancellor and Mrs. Thatcher to, uh, to, uh, not to do what they were advocating, in other words, not to, uh, not to reflate, but to actually... Uh, stick to their tough policies and of course they were proved the economists have proved to be spectacularly wrong at that point which does happen i wanted to mention another aspect of the of the past few weeks though and in particular last week um we have been seeing some very ugly scenes on television about what's happening in america and particularly in terms of uh uh disturbance i'm very reluctant to use the word riot because that's a that's a if you like a an emotional term, um, but it has been a lot of disturbance and clashes between uh, the police and in particular the black community in America, triggered by the death of this uh, gentleman called George Floyd. Now, of course, the remarkable thing is that in some ways we've had all these pictures on, the, on our television screens and yet the stock market and other markets have effectively shrugged them off completely as not being relevant. Uh, again, which is something which has surprised some commentators. Um, why do you think that is? Why, does, why do these uh, kind of episodes have so little impact, or appear to have so little impact, at least in the short term? In this particular case, the answer is because it's a social event which produces social unrest. And it's not a financial event that produces social unrest, like the poll tax riots in the UK, which brought down Mrs. Thatcher, which you also remember very well. In this case, which is not the first time, by the way, that this kind of social event produces social unrest, because it happened with a, another uh, gentleman called Rodney King back in 1992, which was more or less the same thing as now. I remember that very well. Uh, that caused the stock market, again, to shrug its shoulders. Even when you get to more political events, as opposed to social events or financial events, even there the market 
often tends to shrug its shoulders. For example, in 1962, sorry, in 1968, two very prominent Americans were assassinated. The first one was Martin Luther King, and the second one, only a few months later, was Robert Kennedy, President Kennedy's brother. In that year, 1968, the market closed up in America at about 11% plus. So I have yet to see this sort of social unrest producing downward pressure on stock markets, unless President Trump, of course, comes out and says that the whole of the country is back in lockdown, curfew, in order to prevent the social unrest from getting worse. But so far, he hasn't done that. And so I don't think it's, it has any effect. As sad as it is and as tragic as it is, it is not going to affect financial markets. It was interesting looking uh, at the unemployment figures you mentioned before, because one of the features of those that was reported, at least, if the statistics are right, it is interesting that the uh, unemployment rate uh, you know, amongst the white population has fallen quite sharply or, or more sharply. Uh, Hispanics also come down, but the, the black unemployment rate has actually gone up during this period, which I think reflects the kind of uh, employment that the black community has. And it has unfortunately been the their jobs that have suffered most, I think, in this uh, in 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 the uh, in the lockdown crisis. But um, I remember 1968 very well. I, I was only a schoolboy then, but I do remember uh, the the riots in Chicago, in particular, uh, which were very very violent indeed. And uh, <clears throat> it was also an election year, interesting enough, 1968. So, if you like, and Robert Kennedy was was running for president, if you recall, uh, or was it at least uh, in con in contention to run for president. Uh, and uh, so it was very shocking that the uh, you know the assassinations uh, obviously had an impact. Martin Luther King's assassination, I think, was the initial trigger. Um, but the rioting that went on in in Chicago, I think you could call that a riot uh, with, without uh, fear of contradiction, was uh, was uh, was very uh, dramatic and, of course, increased by the uh, by the uh, shall we say excessive reaction of Mayor Daly. If you remember Mayor Daly, the it was a very authoritarian uh, figure in Chicago, and he, his actions, I think, undoubtedly made the situation worse. And there was a lot of looting. But unfortunately, if you look at the longer-term impact of that, you know, it just made Chicago less attractive as a place for companies to do business. And this process of deindustrialization that had been going going on in Chicago for some time actually continued. So it was, if you like, from the point of view of the of, of the uh, community in Chicago, it was actually it was a very uh, unfortunate uh, chain of events and one worries a little bit about what what the reaction to um, uh, to these current events will be as well in terms of, of that kind of thing I think that's very interesting what you just said because in 1968 it wasn't just two prominent Americans who were assassinated but there was a in Europe there was the famous 1968 the Paris student uprisings um, and what you just said now about how the industrial centers were shifting in America, one should probably have a look and see what happened in Europe, and it probably was more or less the same thing with Alsace in France being deindustrialized and so on. Um, but of course, 1968 being the year of a presidential election and the market went up. Now, I think I'm right in saying that 
During US presidential elections, markets usually go up. So maybe that's correct. Yes. So maybe that influenced the stock market's performance in 1968. And if it had not been an election year, maybe the market would not have shrugged its shoulders at the assassination of two prominent politicians. We'll never know. You're absolutely right. It does tend to be the case. Election years do tend to be. It's, it's one of the most reliable patterns, I think, in, in, uh, in stock market history, that the election years are usually positive. Not always. Of course, 2008 was an election year, and that, wasn't, <laughs> that was always the, the, one of the exceptions that, if you like, proves the rule. Uh, so, uh, but you're absolutely right, and, and the third and fourth years of the presidential term are, are usually the strongest of, of the U.S. presidential cycle. So uh, that would be interesting to see. Well, what, what do you think, if you were a betting man, um, Peter, would you be putting money on President Trump being re-elected or not? I mean, in 1968, after all these riots, and of course there was the Vietnam War going on as well, protests in, uh, in America about that as well, uh, and President Johnson said he wasn't going to run for re-election, despite having achieved his social objectives, social policy objectives. And then we got Richard Nixon was the result of as the winner in 1968, which was, uh, I have to say, a disappointment to many of those who'd been protesting and uh, enjoying, um, you know, the revolutionary fervor that was uh, that was uh, that was evident in in the states and a lot of places at the time. Well, you put me on the spot a few weeks ago on, with regard to the stock market, um, which I had no problem uh, with. And now you're putting me on the spot to predict whether President Trump will be re-elected or not. I think the reaction to what he said yesterday, the reaction by Joe Biden, was not really good for Joe Biden when he called the president's words despicable. Because if he uses that kind of rhetoric, he's lowering himself to the same le rhetorical level as President Trump. And therefore, he can't really take the moral high ground. That's one reason. The other reason is that we are in a V-shaped recovery. Financial markets are going up. Jobs are being created. And that's good for the economy. And you know what they say. They say it's the economy, stupid. And therefore, President Trump, unless he does something massively stupid in the next months, now you might say he could easily do something particularly stupid, but if he doesn't, then he would win the election. You've asked me to predict whether he'll win the election, and I say, yes, he will win the election. Right. Well, that's certainly, uh, you can't be uh, accused of fudging that one, uh, Peter. Um, I guess part of it will be also whether how much of the, uh, if you like, how much of the blame, if, you like, if there is blame to be had, uh, sticks to him for the way that the, the virus has been handled in America. We don't, of course, don't know uh, about the States or indeed any other country, what exactly explains the differences in the infection rates and death rates in different countries. Uh, but there is a perception the Americans probably haven't handled this particularly well. Uh, and it, it could, of course, be a factor in the election. But as you say, I suspect it will be uh, subservient to the broader economic picture. And, uh, uh, and Trump's rhetoric seems to play, however absurd it is on occasions, seems to play quite well with a, still play quite well with a large part of the American population. 
whether that's still the case if a large number of them are unemployed still when an election comes around, of course, is another matter. But we can only wait and see. And whether there would be a surge of new infections as the months get colder. I mean, that's another, I think, important point, because if the if there's a new wave of coronavirus, which hits a lot of Americans, while Trump is in charge of dealing with that problem, and if he deals with that problem in the same way that he's dealt with it the first time around, then it could certainly have a, a very negative effect on his popularity. But if not, if there's no resurgence of the virus, and if jobs continue to be created, slowly but surely, and if the GDP contraction is not as bad as expected, then the way that President Trump will have handled the outbreak of the coronavirus will, I think, fade into insignificance. Yes, and that seems to be the lesson of, uh, of, of history, which is that things that seem incredibly important at month A tend not to be so important at, uh, in, uh, in, in future months um, because people are so much more focused on the more recent events that, that uh, shape the narrative, if you like, around the, the political agenda. So it will be very interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, American presidential elections, I find, are always, are, are mostly pretty gruesome events that you have to, you have to live through. The amount of, the amount of nonsense that's spouted, and the and the amount of money that's thrown around, and these horrible attack ads that people have, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty, um, a grisly thing for uh, for the for the impartial observer, shall we say? I'm not saying our system's much better, but it is, uh, it is particularly elevated in the states. So it's something we're going to have to uh, go through again. I suppose you can argue that the great virtue of it has just gone for an awfully long time. So there's no, there's no, there is, uh, they've certainly kind of uh, worked the democratic process, if you like, even if it's um, perhaps not always as democratic as we might like. So, well, okay. Peter, just so to, that's, to, okay. Stop, sorry, just the last thing I want to say about that is that, of course, American elections are different from British elections, very different but mainly because in American elections there's a lot of money being thrown around mm. um, by a lot of people. And money doesn't come into it when it comes to, for example, UK parliamentary elections. So in America it's almost like a financial matter as well as being a political matter. Absolutely. And I think there are a lot of people obviously concerned about the fact that money does seem to be what is well, it's certainly a, a necessary condition for a successful uh, political career, uh, uh, if it's not always sufficient. But the amounts of money that people spend or are allowed to spend, uh, particularly in the super PACs and so on, is, uh, is very concerning, I think. Uh, mind you, of course, back in the good old days in the 19th century, uh, early 18th century, 19th century, we, uh, in the UK, we had a sort of slightly different version of the system where we had a lot of pocket boroughs where the, the local, uh, the local uh, a member of the aristocracy would would decide who was going to who was going to win, and would nominate the candidate, and would uh, and would bribe the voters to um, to come up with the right answer. So it was a kind of central bank of its day in a way, I suppose, distributing largesse. Yes. So that's all we have time for this week, and we'll look forward to coming back next week and and continuing to observe these uh, remarkable events that are going on around us. And there'll be plenty more to talk about, Jonathan. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced and available for distribution every Saturday. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels 
all by signing up on the Money Makers or M&M podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.